0: Have you ever been frustrated with the lack of time you have to focus on leadership? My guest today has used his 20 years of administrative experience to create a wonderful resource for leaders. I'm excited to once again have my good friend Evan Robb, the author of The 10-Minute Principle on the Aspire podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the leadership development podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders, my name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Evan, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Wow, Josh, I am so excited to have an opportunity to be on your podcast um, again. I am a huge fan of your work. I listen to all of your podcasts, and uh, you know it's really so exciting to me that you have been able to provide quality professional development to anyone, anywhere on their iPhone or on their computer. It's a wonderful thing, and I am really honored to be able to be part of this.
0: Well, Evan, it's an honor to have you on the podcast again and for such kind words, so thank you for that. You've had two books just come out, uh, The 10-Minute Principle and Team Makers, which you co-authored with your mom. And I just wanna jump right into your new book, The 10-Minute Principle, which I absolutely love. For those who haven't had the opportunity to read the book, it's broken down into 10-minute leadership solutions and reflections. So I just want to know what led you to write this leadership book, and why did you decide to use the ten-minute strategies?
1: I wanted to capture some of the things that I have learned over the years, you know, Josh. I've been a principal for twenty years, which which is actually quite quite a long time, and feel that I've learned a fair amount along the way, and wanted to be able to capture some things that I've learned, uh, some successes but also be really clear about some failures. And, and this book absolutely includes some of the failures that, that I experienced along the way to help people start understanding the position and what, and what it means for them. Mm-hmm. The 10-minute the concept is really nothing magical. You know, I, I state very clearly in the book that you can't learn how to be an effective principal in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. But the goal of the book is really about thinking, thinking about time and how time can be used in a way to better focus you on teaching and learning and then within the book I try to condense opportunities within 10 minutes so you can do something for 10 minutes on your own or you can work with staff for 10 minutes it's really about looking at the position in a different kind of way one of the things that I found when I first was a principal was I spent a lot of time reacting to everything that was occurring to me and absolutely found myself in a really reactionary kind of position and And I would guess some people that are listening to this can relate to that. Uh, And I needed to find a way to be more proactive, to be more intentional. And the way to do that was to think about all the things that were part of the job of being a principal and uh, learn how to prioritize them and learn how to build them into my day. And in the case of this book, learn how to build them into the day in short chunks of time, approximately 10 minute increments uh, in order to um, increase effectiveness.
0: At the start of the book, you discuss six pillars that you have constructed in your 20 years in administration. So how did you come up with these foundational concepts?
1: You know, the nice thing about writing a book is you have a lot of opportunity to to really do some deep reflection. And part of the journey that I wanted to do in this book is, is capture some key elements that I think, you know, are important to leadership, certainly as I've looked back on my leadership journey, and ideas that I could share with People that were thinking about moving into leadership positions, or people that that were in leadership positions. So the six pillars that I reference in the book are really born out of my experience and taking some extended time, really about four to, four to six months, before I actually wrote this book. Really trying to conceptualize what I wanted it to be about and how I wanted to frame the book up. So the six pillars frame up leadership, and then within the book, those pillars are integrated into more. Practical elements of being a building level principal, and of course, in turn, going into 10 minute increments, uh, increment opportunities within the book. Th- so, they center around vision, relationships, trust, efficacy, a student centered environment, and instructional knowledge. And not necessarily in any magical kind of order, but I have found over the years that all of those, if they are uh, integrated effectively into a building and uh, empowered. Uh, to people that you work with at your admin team and your teachers, a building can become more
0: effective. So I just want to touch on one of those pillars, which is vision. I've heard many administrators in district talk about vision in regards to making sure that an administrator has that in place. So for those who are starting their leadership journey or looking to become an administrator, how would you advise them to create a vision?
1: I think the first thing that I would advise is don't create that vision on your own. Because if you create it on your own, it is all yours, but it might not mean anything to anyone else. You know, And it depends on what kind of school someone comes into. I have had the opportunity to open up a building before. Um, and that's a unique opportunity because you can work collectively with the staff to actually create a vision because nothing exists prior. Mm-hmm. But I think that it is always beneficial for an admin team and teachers to look at the vision of a building and understand what the vision is and then understand what it could be that can come through working with people and revisioning and imagining what the future of the school could look like. So your vision is a place somewhere in the future that you may not actually get to, but that you're all going to work collectively towards. But the power of the vision comes when everyone has some say and some role in actually creating the vision, understanding the vision, and then in turn, articulating the vision. But what I would say, what I've learned about that is that if one person is doing it, then it is their vision, but it is not necessarily the vision of the you know the collective whole. Mm-hmm. Our vision is when everyone is involved in creating it and working towards it.
0: The one area you discuss is building your school's brand to enhance school culture. Why do you feel this is important as far as an action step for building leaders to create a school brand?
1: You know, I appreciate you you bringing that up, and that's something that I really enjoyed writing in the book. I think that at times schools don't think about themselves as, uh, you know, as a brand, you know, a brand associated to their school, but it can be. And, uh, you know, it's a different way of thinking, you know, and so it's applying more of a business model to education. But with the amount of social media, uh, you know, that schools have nowadays, there's lots of opportunities to communicate your story. And I know I, I listened to your podcast that you did with Eric Schenegar, you know, and Eric frequently talks about you communicate your story or someone else will. And social media is a good way to communicate your story, and it's a good way to communicate your brand. So I'm very interested and in, in this book, I certainly enjoy talking about how Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and web presence can actually uh, enhance the brand of a building. And I think one thing that you know, and of course, this this depends on the size of a community, but I have the' um, I'm fortunate to work in a very small community. So in small communities, people are gonna be attracted to the community based off of the school. And when people look to move into the community, they're going to explore the social media that the school is connected with, the school's website, and be able to make some assumptions or presumptions actually about the school. So in a small community, um, and probably in larger communities too, if the school is successful, if it's, um, I believe, marketing itself well, it draws people to the community and I think it can actually help real estate within a community because if a building and school system is doing well, people want to live in the community. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's something that schools can have some role with. One of the things that I that I've mentioned in in some articles that I've written is the marketing element in business absolutely applies to schools. And you know, I encourage people to think about how you can define your brand and how you can market your brand. So think, think about things such as school spirit or the colors of your school, the clothing that the kids wear in your school, all of those things build identity and they draw people to a school, just like they draw people to a restaurant or, or to a particular brand.
0: You have a really impactful story in the book about really a problem that many administrators have in regards to the hiring process So what are some strategies that you use to find the best candidates for your jobs? I think
1: that when a school has a really good understanding of what they are, what they believe in, and where they're going, which would be the vision component, that can help an administrative team and teachers to find people that best align with what they believe in. You know, so I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, my building is very focused on empowerment. And creativity and innovation and taking some risks within a classroom. Now that's not for everyone, and and I understand that. I don't, you know, I don't sit in judgment of people that that want things in a much more concrete sequential way. But I have found that the more that we are able to define what we are, what we believe in, where we're going, we're able through the interview process to find people who we think are a good mesh with that. So What I have found over the years is that, you know, again, the the better that we understand who we are, the better we can ask questions to make sure that the people that we're bringing on board are aligned, at least in terms of their thinking, with the way that our school operates. So, you know, and and I also like, you know, I also like to kind of change up the interview process. You know, I think that um, where some people go wrong, in my opinion, is some people go into an interview just wanting to say what they need to say to get a job. But I think there needs to be more of a a back and forth kind of flow with that where, you know, the person who's being interviewed is also interviewing us. You know, and I certainly expect people, especially nowadays with our presence on social media and our web presence, to make sure that they're doing some research and they're understanding our school and they're understanding our social media, understanding who we are and what we're about, and in turn uh, have an understanding if if they're in good alignment with us, uh, but certainly willing to ask questions. To further clarify if they if they are in good alignment with us, I would say that you know as a principal, someone who's been a principal for a long time, you know the the biggest mistake is bringing people into a building who are not in good alignment with uh, the vision, the mission of the school, mm-hmm. and the the general culture and climate of the school. Now that that can be challenging, you know, and I recognize that you know in, in certain positions it's hard it's hard to get highly qualified candidates. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and sometimes the interview process can take time. Uh, but what I've learned is that I'm not I'm not particularly quick to uh, to jump right away. You know, I'm willing to wait and make sure that we find someone that, that is a really good fit. You know, the other thing that's interesting, Josh, is you know it, it is it is harmful to the culture and climate of a building if people are not a good fit within the school. Mm-hmm. And so it is advantageous to take time to make sure that people who are brought into a school are a good fit. I want people to be successful and obviously people want to be successful and that takes some time to make sure that we're getting to know people. But sometimes you have to break a little free from some of the very, very standard, sometimes um, overly used questions that exist within uh, typical interviews that don't tell you a lot about people. And uh, so I'm certainly interested in, in more probing questions to understand someone's philosophy and of course to understand their alignment with our school's philosophy.
0: Yeah, I always find that topic to be interesting. I love knowing what other administrators do just because I've experienced this firsthand is just a candidate comes in and can tell me every right answer possible. However, when they get in the classroom, it's very, very different. And so we've tried to use multiple concepts and strategies in regards to the interview process, even so much as having the candidate go into the classroom and teach so we can see them firsthand on the job.
1: Yeah, that can be really valuable. What I have found, you know, you can certainly ask probing questions to understand someone's concepts of instructional design, their pedagogical understanding, but you know, there, there's another side to teaching. So you know, there's a there's a science to teaching, and there's an art to teaching, and, and part of the art has to do with relationships and connectivity and how someone connects with you know, with with students, with other staff, and the split decisions that they make in any given moment. Very very hard to understand that within an interview. And at times having someone teach a lesson to kids um, where that can be observed, you know, certainly is a heightened opportunity over the typical questions that one might ask in an interview. Mm -hmm. It takes more time, but again, it speaks to the value and the importance of making sure that you're bringing in people that are a really good fit for the organization.
0: So one of my favorite sections in the book was called Disrupting Routines. I just had Rick Warmelli on the show uh, last episode and touched on several concepts that you had in this section, which was on grading. So why do you think it's so important for leaders to ask important questions to disrupt routines?
1: Great question. You know, before I even respond, I will say that I loved your interview with Rick he is, um He is a friend of mine. And I enjoyed listening to that podcast, sharing it with my staff. I've had the opportunity to have Rick um, actually in our division and absolutely encourage anyone else to do that. He is just an amazing guy. So one of the things that I have found is that um, a pretty simple concept, which is everything that we do is designed to give us exactly what we get. And... I talk about that a lot with my staff and I think about it a lot myself, but it not only applies to schools and I can drive it into schools in a moment, but it applies to us personally as well. So if I am, as an example, if I'm out of shape and I am not eating healthy and I go to the doctor and the doctor says that I'm overweight, that my cholesterol is high and my blood pressure is high, I would probably think that everything that I'm doing in my life is designed to give me that actual result. And so if you think that way within a school, everything that we do is going to give you exactly what you get. So if you want to improve test scores, if you want to improve creativity, if you want to bring more innovation into a building, you're going to have to do something different in order to get something different. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems, and I think it's, it is somewhat pervasive in education, is a belief that, Uh, If you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you're going to eventually get a different result. It does not work. So I believe that you have to shake things up and you're going to have to disrupt routines if you want to get a different result. Now, that's interesting and it's something that gets me thinking a lot because administratively I have to start thinking about what needs to happen within a building for people to feel comfortable to do that because people are not necessarily gonna disrupt their routine and do something different if they don't feel safe and they don't feel that it's okay to do that. So that brings back to some of the things that I speak about in my book under uh, the pillars of leadership that I speak to, uh, particularly um, trust and relationships, uh, because if those are not in place, people are not gonna be willing to do that. And uh, if they're not in place administratively, at best they will exist in pockets within a building, but they won't exist all across the building. Uh, Because people will hunker down and kind of do what they need to do in order to uh, Have their job work with with an administrator so the challenge that you know that, that I put upon myself, but I would certainly encourage anyone else to do is to Get people thinking that to do something to get something different. You're going to need to do something different and Too often We don't do that in education. In fact, we, we repeat things a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a product of an education system where everyone got the same thing repeated by the teacher every day over the course of the entire year. You simply fit in along some sort of bell curve, wherever your grades may have fallen. Now, that doesn't work. That's not good for kids. So when when you think about that example, you think, okay, you know, you have to differentiate. You have to start personalizing, and uh, you, you know that can help shift things. It can, but to do it across a building, you need to look at particular indicators that you want to pay attention to, whether it is the type of instruction that's occurring in the classroom or particular uh, pieces of data uh, that may be repetitive. You know, in terms of year in year out state testing, and then ask yourself, what can you do? To do different? Because again, if you don't do something different, you're going to get the exact same result. So it's a great question and and certainly something that, that I do enjoy talking about.
0: Since we're discussing enhancing our leadership skills with little time, I want to take a minute to tell you about a new online resource from Better Leaders, Better Schools called Go Community. This has become one of my favorite places to go to engage with other amazing school leaders. This online resource is a great place to have conversations with other leaders, gain insight, engage in book studies, and develop your own leadership capacity. This online community is very, very different than social media because it's a private community with the same goal. I highly recommend using Go Community to level up your leadership capacity. If you're interested, go to joshstamper.com slash resources to sign up. What are some ways our campus and district leaders can create purposeful meetings and disrupt the status quo in regards to professional development?
1: Well, that's a really, um, (laughs) I appreciate that you bring that up. (laughs) I I think that, you know, Josh, I think one of the problems that exists in education is that sometimes there's a weird kind of a discrepancy between what administrators may want to see in the classroom and how they conduct business as administrators, you know, it's, it, that can be hard to say because, you know, I'm an administrator, Sure, but, but, but think about it. If an administrator wants to talk about creativity, innovation, disrupting routines, doing something different in order to get something different, yet the meetings that they manage are the same meetings that, you know, I experienced 25 years ago, where someone stands in front of a group of people with a yellow legal pad and some bullets on it and simply reads off some uh, particular um Actions or tasks that people are supposed to do—that doesn't seem to make sense. So, I think it's very, very important that administrators model what they want to see in the classroom. So, if administrator wants to see, you know, growth mindset, wants to see uh, something like Rick Wormley would talk about, you know, where hope, you know, where opportunities for kids to have retakes and things of that nature reduce, they need to be able to live that. Uh, through their actions as administrators within a building. Otherwise, no one's gonna believe what anyone says. You know, There needs to be a high cruency between what you say and what you do. So if you are saying that you want creativity and disruption of routine and you want innovation, but what you do is old school in terms of how you run a meeting, that does not seem to make sense and that seems to be, to be a problem. Uh, I do talk a little bit in the book that Uh, We need to ask ourselves, you know, are are certain are things that we are doing in meetings able to be achieved through an email Mm -hmm. or through um, sharing a Google Doc where people can contribute that way? You know, I'm much more interested in meetings that allow people to collaborate just like I would like students to collaborate. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, if I would like, you know, if one of the things that I talk about and one of the things that that I espouse and communicate to staff, is for classrooms to have lots of collaborative opportunities for kids where they can work together or they can work on um, integrating technology in order to enhance or transform the way that they think or learn then it would make sense that the faculty meetings that we orchestrate within the building are exactly the same because if they're not that seems to be disingenuous and seems to be a problem but it can be very easy to, to think, well, this is a faculty meeting and this is, you know, administration, so it needs to be done in this way. However, I want you to be incredibly creative and collaborative within your classroom um, and, and integrate all these cool technologies. But I'm going to stand in front with a yellow legal pad and tell you some things that you need to do. I'm going to task you. Maybe that's a little bit harsh, but that does exist. And that is something that we absolutely need to take a look at.
0: Well, I want to touch on that in regards to an answer that you provided. So in a system that generally punishes staff and students for failure, how are we able to foster creativity and innovation in our schools?
1: My schooling, as I reflect on it, was uh, a motivation for me to avoid failure mm-hmm. and to avoid failure at all costs. And at different points, when I was a little bit more academic, at least in the eyes of the school, it became a chase for points. Uh, so I could earn points, but none of it had anything to do with learning. And I think one of the things that we learn, and Rick Wormley speaks about this quite well, is that everything that we experience as adults, we can do over again. And, you know, Josh, if if you and I are both studying accounting, and we both take the CPA exam, and you're probably smarter than me, so you fail it on the first time, but I fail it five times, but I still pass it, we're both still CPAs. Mm -hmm. I'm not the CPA who failed it five times. I'm a CPA. And sometimes we get caught up in education with putting a high degree of sanctity around an assessment um, with an idea that, you know, that's going to teach you got to get you ready for the real world. It doesn't work that way. And kids are not motivated by failure. And, and as adults, we're not either. It doesn't motivate adults at all. Neither does fear. And a lot of those things do exist in school. And, you know, I can certainly recall them when I was in school. I was motivated by fear of failure. I did my work because I was afraid that I wouldn't do well. So it brings us to thinking about what things need to happen within the culture and climate of a building to get people to think different. Because one of the things that I found, you know, in terms of uh, routines, you know, certainly in terms of grading within schools, is I haven't found people that do things with with poor intentionality. I mean, I think people come in every day trying to do the best that they they genuinely can, but often they do it based off of what they experienced when they were in school from a practicum teacher who told them that this is the way that you do it, or a teacher down the hall who did it a particular way and they adopt it, but they're not necessarily thinking about what they're doing and why they're doing it what i would say is you know in, in terms of assessment and in terms of disrupting routines within a building for staff or students people need hope and they need the they need to believe that they can recover and better themselves because if they don't they quit you know it, it's in, it's interesting i'm going to go off on a tangent here but if i take a advanced cost accounting course right now i am probably going to sit in the back of the classroom And I'm probably going to be quiet and I probably won't do well, or maybe I could do well, but I'd have to really, really work really hard at it. But I can rationalize that and I can say, okay, everyone in this class is, you know, getting ready for this to be a CPA and I'm not. So, you know, I understand why they're better at it than me. But when you're 12 years old, you don't think that way. When you're 12 years old, you judge your entire world based off of being able to feel like you can do something or or you can't. And when kids feel like they can't, they quit, you know, and when kids quit, we change their pathway and we change their trajectory. And that's something that we really need to think about as educators. If we both got together, maybe with our friend Vernon, and we went to visit an elementary school, we went into a kindergarten or a first grade classroom and we would ask little kids, hey, what do you want to be? You know, they would all be so excited, and they would say, I want to be an astronaut, you know, I want to be an actor, you know, all these wonderful kind of things. And sometimes when you ask a group of juniors, what do you want to be? The response is more, I want to be out of here, or, you know, I want to be done with school so I can move on. And there are a lot of of things that go into that, and I would not want to oversimplify that um, because it is complicated. But without a doubt, part of that has to do with how we do school and how we communicate with kids. Although it is complicated, you know, I do believe that there is some responsibility and some good reflection opportunities for educators on why that, why that occurs.
0: Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point there. You know, for instance, you were talking about taking a course. I don't know about your experience, but for me in college, especially if I was to take a history class on the 1800s and it did not interest me, obviously my grade was going to be far less than something that I had a passion in and something I had a vetted interest in. Um, For instance, like I was an artist, so every art class I had, I put every ounce of energy I had to get a good grade, not because the grade had anything to do with my success, but because I was passionate about it. And so many times I feel like our students are just going to these courses and because they have to, not because they want to. And so I just find it interesting as far as the future of education, how will that look? Because I think research and things that are coming out shows that our students are looking for choice in their education.
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, to to do school really well nowadays and to navigate through high school, you have to be good at a lot of different things. You know, you start finding as an adult that, you know, you, you find the pocket where, where you're good at. I think that th- that's a really, really interesting question. Um, but I think that over the future, I think there might be more choice opportunities for kids to be able to work and develop things that that they're naturally better at or they're Mm -hmm. interested in you you know and and then put your effort into that because that's where you become great you know i i read um recently i read malcolm gladwell's book um i think the outsiders i think it's called the outliers and uh, but what he talks about is this whole concept of like ten thousand hours and you know that that it takes that much time to become really great at something Mm. and uh you know, you can't become great at everything. No. The people that become great, you know, whether it's music or art, you know, they put in a lot of time. And school is not necessarily developed that way. You know, it is, it's chunks. Even though we try to create thematic units and we try to create integration, it does typically chunk for kids between, you know, math and science and English and there are other courses that possibly limits kids ability to, to focus most on what they're particularly interested in. I mean, there are benefits to experiencing a lot of different types of learning, and that can help you kind of hone in on, on where your true passion is. But, um, but there is a possibility that we may do a little too much of it within education. I think it's probably something that we need to think about. Yep. And again, it kind of comes back to what I, what I was talking about earlier, I talk about in my book, is that everything we do is designed to give us what we get. So if we want to look at uh, achieving a different result, we're going to need to look differently, not just at instructional methods and not just at, you know, our the, attitu- the attitudes that we bring into the building or the cultures that exist within a building, but actually into the design of schools all across America from K to 12.
0: That's interesting because compartmentalizing piece too. I think history is just in a box here and math is in a box here and art is in a box over here. But just what you were talking about as far as changing what education looks like, it just makes me wonder of how we can maybe create a, a system that is more interdisciplinary and allowing students to make connections in multiple subjects at one time.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of possibilities you know, within project-based learning. There are really a lot of cool things that our schools are doing across, all across the country where you know, there's grade-level projects that, that, that get kids to think about the interconnectedness of curriculum. Uh, and um, instead of seeing it, it is it is isolated, and that's probably a, a pathway that we need to take a really good look at. You know, I think you know, on the opposite of that, you know, you shared an example about history and and your love of art, mm-hmm. and you know, and and I can share the same. So I I thought that I was a really good history student because every Friday I would take the test and I would do well on it. Um, I was good at regurgitating information, but I really wasn't good at understanding history. I um, mean, I certainly wasn't good at making emotional connections to history. Mm-hmm. So I was good within the system, but then the question is: is is was the system um, giving me the skills that I needed? And you know, I think another thing that we need to think about is: is if you look at, you know, and there's lots of things out there within Twitter and all over the the internet on what are the skills that we want kids to have when they graduate high school, and they are, they're not, you know, being able to ace a state standardized test. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to be things like creativity, collaboration, communication, you know, being able to work together as a team, um, having inquiry skills. And so then you need to ask yourself, okay, how can those particular skills be integrated into the curriculum? And, and that is different than the example that I give of a history curriculum that is very fact, Fact where you, know you take the notes, and you take the test every Friday. Mm-hmm. That is not teaching you any of those skills that I mentioned. And I think that's something that schools need to have conversations about, um, and we need to pay a lot of attention to. It is rather clear the skills that we need our kids to have. The more poignant question is, is the curriculum that we're exposing kids to, uh, the pedagogy that we're bringing into the classrooms, and the mindsets that we are imparting on kids um, as educators, preparing them for the world that they are about to enter.
0: Yeah, I think this is an interesting concept. So with those soft skills that you were referring to, do you at your school touch on social-emotional learning?
1: We do. We hold class meetings every Friday within our building. I'm fortunate to have a really good guidance staff, and it is actually well-coordinated where the guidance staff works with a group of teachers Um, within the building i'm fortunate to be able to be on that committee uh, and we create lessons that exist within grade six grade seven and grade eight and they are purposeful and they are intentional and they 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 build from one year to the next to give kids opportunities to reflect on that Mm -hmm. you know and that's something that can easily get neglected within school you know if, if it's overly focused on um factual kind of curriculum and and a lot of assessment but being in middle school you know in high school too and and of course elementary also it is harder for kids nowadays than when we were in school and um, there's a lot more intensity that comes to youth and and i experience that every day Mm -hmm. Uh, you know part of that is through social media social media has been uh, an incredible positive for, for me personally, for teachers, for public education and, and certainly for, for kids, but it brings a lot of intensity into the building. And you know, we need to help kids prepare for that. You know a lot of schools are very quick to look at banning, you know you want to ban these things or you want to put kids social media into a box. Uh, and that is not necessarily preparing them for the world that they're going to enter. And uh, it's an easy solution, it's a solution that can be popular. Um, and frankly, it's a solution that could be popular within communities because parents didn't experience it and you know they think, well, this is what you have to do. But that's when it's very important for educators to use their professional eye and have those conversations about what do our kids need? Um, what do they need in terms of curriculum? What do they need in terms of uh, differentiating? And what do they need in terms of the social and emotional supports that we can provide for them? And, and they're all they're all important and they certainly add to the the challenges and complexities of being an educator you know in this day and age but uh, but it's important that they exist within schools and I believe that they need to exist intentionally. I don't think it can just kind of be uh, you know just something that's an add-on or or uh, or something that's all the problem of the guidance department. you know the right. guidance department you have two two guidance counselors in a school with six hundred kids and they have to handle all the social and emotional needs of a kid. Right. Uh, that that there's a false logic to that. But whether it's purposeful or inadvertently, it occurs. You know, and I think and I know a lot of the work that you've done, and you've done some great work with this, you know, to raise awareness uh, of trauma, you know, and understanding the impact of, of that within schools. And then most importantly, understanding how a school can collectively um, work to understand and collectively work to support kids mm-hmm. and to support families.
0: So I want to touch on social media with leadership. Um, you ended your book with Choose Your Path. And I know with social media, a lot of aspiring leaders look on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and they compare themselves to others. So why is it important for each leader to find their own journey?
1: I think that, you know, as I think back on my career, maybe ultimately that's that's what it's all about. When you're new and, you know, you get out of college, you know, you want to get your first job, you know, you might find yourself going into an interview saying what you think you need to say. Maybe you're reading a book, you know, or looking on the internet to understand how to answer questions, so you can get a job. And uh, I understand that, you know, I, I think I've been there before, but, but ultimately the journey is to figure out who you are, who you are, what you believe in and what you stand for and and where your lines are. And that has to do with, with figuring out your own path. What I would say is, is a person's understanding of agency uh, for themselves, and uh, seeing themselves as a learner, and allowing themselves to learn and grow, and to learn from other people, but ultimately to formulate who who they are and and what they are. You know, and social media has been really helpful for me in that regard. You know, I've had I've been blessed. I've had an opportunity to meet some wonderful people, um, you certainly included, oh, thank you, and uh, people that I can learn from, and people that I can grow from, and people that help me better understand who I am. Uh, what I want to be and, um, you know, how I want to be perceived and, and the impact that I want to make. And that's something that I have a lot of control over. You know, there there are lots of things within school administration, you know, I know I know you know this, that we don't have a lot of control over. There are parts of our job that, uh, that will always be reactionary because it's dynamic and there are things that, that we cannot control. Yes. Uh, but there are things that we can control, you know, how we communicate to other people, what we believe how we communicate what we believe, our belief in children and our belief in disrupting routines in order to create different outcomes. You know, those are things that we have a lot of control over um, and they have to do with the path that we choose, which is something that we can choose every single day. You know, One of the things that I like to speak about a lot is um, along with choosing a path is choosing attitude and um, positivity as an example. Uh, positivity is a choice. Mm-hmm. There are people who are, choose to be positive and there are people that choose to be negative negative. and what i can say josh is of every successful person that i've ever known or people that i've read about or, or seen on tv i have never seen successful people however you may define success as negative kind of misanthropic people i mean you just don't see it that way you know people who tend to make a, an impact are positive and that's a choice and the impact of positivity can be very profound as a school leader you know, one of the things that I, I, you did a really good interview with uh, Todd Whitaker and I love Todd Whitaker's books and Todd Whitaker has a saying that, you know, when the principal I and mean, when the teacher catches a cold, everyone catches the cold. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you see, take the same parallel and you put it into a building and say, you know, whatever the principal of the building does, it gives permission for the teachers to do that. So if the principal is a yeller, you know, it gives permission to be, to yell. You know, if the principal sarcastic, it gives permission to be sarcastic. But on the other side, if the principal is positive, if the principal is inspirational, if the principal is, you know, a motivator, principal is a believer in kids and teachers, uh, that can impact the building also. Uh, it's part of the big responsibility that comes with leadership. Um, and it comes with the responsibility of choosing your path. Mm-hmm.
0: So you had a very busy year. You've had two books come out. Uh, we have talked about one in this podcast, The 10-Minute Principle, but you've also had the pleasure of writing a book with your mom, Laura Robb, and that book is called Team Makers. So for those who haven't had an opportunity to read Team Makers, will you just give us a quick synopsis on the book? I
1: will. Thank, thank you very much. I, I, um, my, I think the best teacher that I've ever had um, is my mother you know, my mother has written over 30 books in education. Wow. And uh, writing came to me very late in life. And uh, I, I just simply, I didn't, as I reflect back on it, I didn't really have good teachers when it came to teaching me how to learn how to write. Uh, but, I, but, be, but I thought it many times in my life that I just was not capable of writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, was fortunate to have a mother who didn't give up on me in that regard and helped me learn how to develop and grow as a writer. So we had an opportunity to work with um, Dave Burgess Publishing to write Team Makers, and and it was a wonderful experience. In a nutshell, Team Makers parallels a lot of what we've talked about today, which is the importance of relationships, personal efficacy, collective efficacy, communication and collaboration in order to positively impact the learning of kids and create better environments for teachers you know a a lot of what our book talks about is too much in education is disparate uh, disconnected and um, people not necessarily working together uh, in the degree of concert that they can um, if they're willing to think a little bit differently and so laura and i have an opportunity in this book to talk about that we have uh, a lot of people who have Helped us along the way with the book in order to add short vignettes into the book. Mm -hmm. One of them in particular are one of our good friends, Chris Felicello, yes, who who has a great book just out, The Teacher and Admin. Him and Gary, Armida, which is a wonderful book, and I'd certainly recommend that to anyone. And Chris uh, gave a great interlude within our book focusing on relationships, you know, and the importance of relationships because those things are foundational in order for things to occur. However, what I would say. Sometimes within, and I don't mean to be this critical at all, but sometimes within Twitter in particular, there can be, one might construe a oversimplification of education as being very much about relationships. It is. Nothing in education works without relationships. It's truly the foundation, but our profession is far more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. But with good relationships comes the, uh, opens up the door for for thinking, for reflecting, for pedagogy, for uh, taking some risks, bringing innovation into into the classroom, and when all of those things come together, you know, magic can occur. And um, so we try to share some
0: of that within the book. So Evan, I have to ask: Do you have any other projects in the works right now?
1: I do. I have. Um, I wrote. I wrote another book with with my mother called "A School Full of Readers" with Benchmark Publishing, and that's going to be. Ah, uh, released I believe in mid October. Awesome, and uh, we get to, in in that book. Mom and I, I uh, get to talk about something that we really, really are enthusiastic about, which is reading, and finding ways to uh, bring more independent reading and more purposeful, intentional reading into classrooms from elementary schools all the way up to high schools.
0: Evan, how can our listeners connect with you on social media?
1: Thank you for asking that. Very much, I um, can be found on Twitter at erobprincipal and I try to be fairly active on Twitter. I am incredibly appreciative of my PLN and, uh, you know, enjoy connecting and learning from so many wonderful educators all over the world. I am on Facebook at Evan Rob Principal and on LinkedIn at Robb Principal, if you want to connect to me that way. Also, I do have a blog called the Rob Review Blog, where uh, my mother and I share our thoughts and opinions on education, teaching, and learning. And we also have guest writers um, join us, you know, as we kind of participate in, in spreading our message, have a small podcast called the Rob Review Podcast, where um, my mother and I share short little 10, 10 minute vignettes on teaching and learning. And we try to bring a little bit of humor as I share some of uh, stories from my rather dysfunctional middle school education. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, like, like to share that with people, because again, I want people to know, although you uh, Sometimes it's a little bit embarrassing to share, but but I need people to know that it was no cakewalk for me, mm-hmm. and uh, it was rather challenging at times, and, and I enjoy sharing that because I think people need, need to understand that.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And for those who are looking for any of those links, they'll be in the show notes. So Evan, you are definitely a great friend of the podcast, and I am honored that you're on here for a second time. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: I, I thank you so much for having me on again, as I said in the beginning the work that you're doing to um, spread a positive message about education and and being able to get quality professional development from some of the best minds in education directly into people's cars, into their home office, into their classroom, uh, it's amazing. And so I, I commend you for doing that. And I truly appreciate our connection and our partnership and wish you and your podcast nothing but the best.